Today, I am here talking with two guys that you all know very well, I'm sure, Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Uh, so for those of you who um, might not be aware, um, they have created, of course, the very popular lock and key uh, comic, fantasy horror comic. And for those of you who might not know, it is about uh, three siblings who, um, after a family tragedy, move to their family estate, Elock of Massachusetts. And they come across these magical keys, which give them supernatural powers. And at the same time, there is a demon who is after those same keys and... I guess adventure ensues. Welcome to Dubai. This is your first time to Dubai, yeah? Yeah. yeah. This is my very first time in this part of the world. Yeah. And I, I feel very lucky to having Dubai as the first time that I get here because uh, even if I have been here like one and a half day, I have enough time to realize how the city and the people in the city are. And I feel as surprised as welcome because it's a unique part of the world. You yeah. realize this very unique city. And Joe, how have you found Dubai so far? I'm a long way from home, you know. <laughs> uh, this is, I was thinking I've only gone this far from home once before in my life. Not that I'm such a terrible homebody, but this, <laughs> is, this is about halfway around the world from, uh, from where I live. This is probably the first time that you have to travel as much as me to get to a point in which we get together. It's true. <laughs> normally, normally when Gabe and I get together, I fly about three hours and he flies 17 because <laughs> um, he's from uh, Chile. But, yeah. um, and I've... I've I think the city is a tremendously exciting place to visit and see and, and explore. It's this, you know, sort of astonishing mix of the traditional and the futuristic. You know, you have this feeling in a weird way of coming to a place where the future already exists. Um, and that's, that's kind of, I mean, we just walked in from a laser light yeah. show, yeah. like something on a Blade Runner. Yeah, um, it's quite astonishing. And it's great to also <clears throat> be in a place that uh, gets pride of being a multicultural place. Well, we're definitely glad that you guys are here and you're enjoying Dubai so far. <laughs> so uh, to get to the grid of things, I kind of want to start at the beginning. And uh, it's been almost 10 years now since uh, Lock and Key has been out in the world. And I wanted to start uh, with you, Joe, and how you initially, I suppose, got this idea in your head. And right. I'm interested to know how you then talk to uh, Gabriel about it. So Gabe was, we were talking a little while ago, and Gabe pointed out that it's been exactly 10 years since yeah. the first issue was published. The first issue was published yeah, in February in of 2008. February, February 8th of 2008 was when the first issue came out. Right, so it's been 10 years of lock and key. But the story actually has earlier roots. The, the lock and key actually begins about three or four years before. I was in 2003, 2004, I was a failed novelist. I had written four books that I was completely unable to sell. And was pretty much, pretty much about decided that, that I was, didn't have a novel in me, that I probably wasn't going to be able to make that happen. But I had written a number of short stories, and some of those short stories had done pretty well for themselves, had won prizes. One of them got in a best-of collection. I thought, okay, I can do that. I can write a short story. I know how to write a short story. And around that time, Marvel Comics was, had a program to discover new talent. And a talent scout there got in touch with me and asked if I had ever wanted to write about men wearing capes punching each other in the face. <laughs> and I was like, who doesn't? Who doesn't want to do that? So I wound up writing an 11-page Spider-Man story for Marvel Comics. And that was sort of my big breakthrough. I felt like, you know, this tremendous sense of validation and excitement. Like, maybe I didn't have it in me to write a novel, but I have it in me to write a comic. And if I could get an ongoing gig in comic books... That, could be, that would be a pretty happy ending. That would be pretty satisfying. So I worked up a series of pitches, a series of sort of one-line story ideas for Marvel. I remember one of them was for Baby Hulk, 
Everyone knows the Hulk, right? Yeah. <laughs> At the time, I had a toddler, and I didn't realize until I had one how angry they are. <laughs> They're angry all the time, you know? And, and I was watching They're my two- angry and empowered. So. <laughs> angry and empowered? I watched my two-year-old pick up this plastic yeah. truck. <laughs> and I thought, what if it was a real truck? <laughs> and and so that was one of the pitches was for Baby Hulk. I don't know why Marvel didn't want it. I think it's genius. Um, one of the ideas I sent him was for a story about a house full of enchanted keys, and every house would unlock a different door and activate a different supernatural power. And Marvel Comics passed on it, and DC Comics passed on it, a few other comic companies passed on it, but I didn't pass on it. You know, and I remember I would be like, you know, I'd run out of diapers at two in the morning, which is the only time you ever run out of them. You never run out of diapers in the middle of the day when exactly. it's easy to just replace them. You run out of them at two in the morning. There's no more diapers left. And so I'd be like out at two in the morning, you know, driving and I'd, I'd think up a new key or I'd think up something about the, the people in the house. It turned out I did have a novel in me. And I, I sold one in 2005. I sold my first book of short stories, and I managed to. I was there was you know I had a novel written called Heart Shaped Box that had was generating some excitement that people wanted yeah. to publish. And around the same time, IDW Comics got in touch with me to ask about adapting a couple of my horror stories for a comic they had. And I said, no, wait, I got something better. Mm-hmm. I sent them the pitch for Lock and Key, and I said, and if you let me do it, I can tell the whole story in six issues. Of course. And I was in one year, and I was yeah. only off by six years and 31 issues. Yeah. So and the artist's going to be on time on every issue, every, so, guaranteed. So the question was, so they said, okay, let's go for it. And the question was, who was going to draw it? And they sent me work. Um, there's, there are three, there's one other person who is really a few other people, but there's, there's one other person who's been on lock and key from the beginning, our friend, Chris Ryle, who's the editor in chief at, at IDW comics. And, um, uh, Chris sent me art from three artists and one was Gabe and two others were artists. He never, he never ever wanted to work with because he didn't (laughs) think they were any, so he actually, Pick Gabe for the comic before I pick Gabe for the comic. And he sort of shaped my decision by offering me two artists no one would want to work with. Yeah. Um, I still owe Chris a check, but... <laughs> but the thing is, is though, I... I the, to be, so these other artists did draw really great gory stuff, like, you know, demons ripping skeletons out of human bodies and stuff. And, but that's not really what makes horror work. You know, throwing as much gore at the reader is not what makes something scary. And what I liked about Gabe when I looked at his art was his characters had these wonderful, lively faces that expressed emotions and interior thought. And I thought, that's actually actually how good horror begins. Good horror begins when you fall in love with a character. And then when they suffer the worst, you're along on the ride with them. You're invested and you care. And so I, I knew when I saw Gabe's the way Gabe worked with character, that we would be able to make something good together. Yeah, I, I remember when I got, when I first got the pitch of Lock and Key from Chris Ryle, he sent me uh, a brief that you did for the series that was like a one-page yeah. description of the concept of the story and how you wanted to develop it, and another page in which you have like the strict three-line description of each one of the eight main characters of the first arc. And I remember that when I read that, I immediately felt was, well, it was the kind of comic book I was hoping to do at some point in my career because when I got back to reading comics as a teenager, 
was through Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Mm -hmm. And I hope to be able to get to a project that was like that to be my first like creator-owned project. So when I got the offer for this was irresistible because it had that kind of magic approach to stories, but also because it was it had a charming family. And when I read the that succinct description of the main characters, I immediately realized that there were going to be meaningful characters and a group of characters that you, you easily fell in love with. So even though I worked in several graphic novels before, each time that I started designing the visuals of one of those books, I started researching, taking reference to create the characters and everything. I think in Lockheed was the first time that just when I read the description, the image of the characters immediately mm. popped out in my mind. So I remember as soon as I got the pitch, I did like the first sketches of the of the three kids and a couple more characters, and I sent them to Chris and Joe for them to check it and to see if that's the approach that we're going to get to the, to the entire series. And they immediately agreed with that. They felt it was the, the right approach to make these characters come to life. And from that point on, I think we never, ever disagree on anything creatively developing the, the story. The first thing, the first character he drew was actually the ghost key. Yeah. There's, and, <laughs> and one of the secrets of lock and key that makes it work is that the keys are also characters. Yeah. And the ghost key is a, it unlocks this one door, and when you walk through it, your body drops dead and your spirit walks free. Mm. And you can experience what it's like to be a ghost. Mm. And uh, I still, when I, I, when I think about seeing that, the ghost key for the first time, I still, you know, my scalp kind of crawls because it was so great. You know, really and excited me. Would you guys say that this has been your process throughout uh, creating the comics um, in terms of collaborating and working together? Because I think a lot of people would be interested to know how you created something that feels so cohesive when, you know, you're very image-based and you're very story mm. or word-based. So maybe talk us through, like, the process. Do you send something and then you send something back and, and then you have comments on it or how did that really work? There's a few things to say there, but one is that, you know, we've sort of grown together as creators and have learned a lot about what we like from each other. Mm -hmm. I remember when I wrote the first couple scripts, a comic book is about 24 pages. Yeah. And I would write scripts that were three times that length. I would write <laughs> scripts that were 60, 65 pages. You know, the, 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 um, the first book of Lock and Key is probably 108 pages long, but probably had 300 pages of scripts um, for it. You know, where I'm meticulously, I wouldn't just be describing, you know, what's happening in a panel. I'd be describing, you know, the weather and the character's emotional interstate and what yeah. they ate for breakfast. And, yeah. you know, it's all kind of there for Gabe because I didn't know what would be important to Gabe. Yeah. Over time, as we worked, my scripts began to shrink more and more because a lot of times I could just say a couple things and Gabe would know exactly what I was hoping for. And, of course, he'd always deliver something even better than what I was imagining. But it would be, you know, I didn't need to say that much. And, and I do think that, you know, we've been creating, we've been making stories together now for a decade, and a lot of times... <laughs> We're like an old married couple where I start a sentence and he can finish it. We like all the same jokes. When he talks about wanting to do something like Sandman, that's also what I wanted to do. I yeah. wanted to do something like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, which was another big keystone for Gabe. And well, the way in which developed the mechanics of, the, of our re creative relationship about this creepy part in which he thinks we are married, <clears throat> which really is something that scares me a lot, uh, <laughs> is the fact that uh, one... It actually happened, this thing that they say, that when you spend too much time in a story with a group of characters, 
you realize that the characters start talking to you mm -hmm. and you start guessing how the characters will behave. You don't drive them, they drive you. And this is something that actually happened in Lock and Key. We didn't have to be as detailed on description or to think, overthink how to solve any situations because the story itself started to feed you with what you need to, to make it happen. And the other thing that happened that sort of shrunk uh, Joe's scripts is that he learned a very annoying trick, which is when he managed to make situations that actually fit in two or three panels into a single panel. So you have this description, <laughs> well, you have the close-up in which the kid is playing with the key, and in the background you have this very <laughs> complex action scene of a guy gripping another, and which you have to see in his tiny face that he's really scared, and yet you manage to sort out that kind of stuff. So that helps us solve a lot of space problem throughout the narrative it's true. story. It's true. When you're working with someone like Gabe, you discover that he can fit about the material of like five different panels in one panel. <laughs> and people forget that, that panels can have depth as well as, you know, as well as showing something. You can have something happen in the foreground, something happen in the middle yeah. ground, something happen in the background. And I was like, wow, every panel is three panels. <laughs> Gabe won't mind at all. I was talking to someone. Someone, there's, We'll get to the TV stuff about Lock and Key soon. But, but someone was talking about what's the difference between working in comics and TV. And I said... Well, you know, when you write something for TV, you write in a script, you know, like, you know, the army marches over the hill, you know, and people got to go out and hire 500 extras and, you know, get a big crane, a huge crew. And I'm like, you know, it's so much easier in comics. All I got to do is write, you know, <laughs> the army marches over the hill and then Gabe draws it. <laughs> and Chris Rowe was like, yeah, it's not any easier for Gabe. <laughs> Gabe's got to drive 500 soldiers. Yeah, but I got to admit that the hard stuff is the fun stuff. And when you realize how important that's going to be in the story, you really get driven into taking the challenge mm. and overcome it. I remember when I, when I first got the description of this scene in book two, Head Games of Lock and Key, in which they use the magical head key that opens people's head and gets you to look at their thoughts you and can their see the imaginary world, world becoming a landscape. So Joe gave me this double-page spread to explore the head of the little kid in, in a visual that was a nightmare to do. I remember I worked for 10 days to solve that couple of pages. And every step of the way, I was complaining about you writing it. But I was very <laughs> sure that it would completely pay off in terms of the story and what it would get to the universe of Lock and Key and to the experience of the reader. So then you realize that one of the fun things of collaborating with talented people that us is that it's a constant challenging on the other person's skills to see how where you can take this story, how can you make it more awesome, more entertaining, more gripping, more compelling. So that's part of the, of the charm well, of it. I mean, that's the thing, is when you're working with great people who, who you love their work, it's, and this is the best thing about working in comics, you know, Gabe would do a page that was so exciting, and then I'd think, well, I'm writing an issue, how, how can I blow him away? I want to do something that yeah. he's just going to, you know, yeah. he, he's just going to blow his mind. Yeah. And so you get into this kind of feedback loop where you're both trying to one-up each other in the best possible way. And, you it, know? and it goes in every step of the way, because for me, as an artist, I set up the action that Joe describes in the script, and I do the best possible to, to make it into a, into a visual narrative. But then I pass it to a colorist. We were very lucky throughout Lock and Key that we did the entire series with the same colorist, which is Jay Photos, which is an awesome, awesome artist that gave Lock and Key a very unique look and appeal. And for me, after Joe sent me the script and I sent to the editor the inked page to get back the colored page from the colorist, it's great because I got the same 
thrill of watching my work through the eyes of other artists that became something completely different and even more awesome than any idea could I have in my mind of it before being finished. So having all this exchange with creative people throughout the process of making a comic book is a fascinating experience. There's a page in the second issue where Bodie, the small boy, climbs through a barred window into a well house, mm -hmm. and it's a full-page spread. I remember thinking the image was remarkable, you know, wonderful image. Uh, but then Jay Photos colored it, yeah. and there's this haze of sunlight. In the, yeah. in the finished colored picture, there's a haze mm -hmm. of sunlight coming through the bars. Mm -hmm. And it, he managed to capture the, a particular kind of light yeah. that you'll find on a New England morning in the just at the very end of summer when, when you can almost feel a little bit of autumn just in the morning. You know, when the sun comes all the way up, it'll be summer again. Yeah. But at that hour of the morning, it's almost, it's maybe the month may be August, but it's starting to feel like October. Yeah. And you could see all that in this one haze of dusty light. And, uh, you yeah, know, I, I think Jay is one of the few artists wonderful. that can give through color a sense of emotion and a sense of weather. Yeah. And that's something very hard to achieve, and Lock and Key got benefit of it. I think what's also really interesting, especially in that uh, page that you described that I remember quite well, is that what's great about Lock and Key is that there's a sense of creepiness and suspense that's built in, and it's both visual and in the story. But I'm interested to know when sometimes you have an idea where you think this is going to be really creepy or really suspenseful, but then once it comes an image, it doesn't have the same effect in how you work around that. It happened to me a couple of times, but always like in the positive way. I have a, a couple of pages that I remembered that ended up working up much better than when I thought it would be when I was drawing it. Because uh, as I say, when, when you're drawing the page, you're still in the unfinished stage of the, of the process. And when, because in comic books, the finished page is the printed page. The experience that the reader is mm -hmm. going to get is the final product of a comic book. So I remember especially there's an, a page in, in, I think, in the fifth issue of Welcome to Lovecraft. She comes out of the well. Kills Kinsey calls Bodie, and Bodie turns out from mm -hmm. the window of the well to answer her. And then we see Dodge coming out of the well. And that's, I think that single panel is my personal best achievement of a creepy moment in a, in a comic book. And that's not even in a turn of a page, but even so, it works anyway. And that surprised me when I saw the final comic book printed. There's, there's, there's an argument that you can't actually scare people in a comic book. Hmm. And I'm pretty sympathetic to that. You can gross people out. Yeah. But you can't actually terrify them in a comic book. It's not true, but I'm very sympathetic to that argument. It's hard to scare people in a yeah. comic book. Movies are visual, mm. and comic books are visual, but movies mm. also have sound. Yeah. And a lot of times, like in the most scary films, what really scares people is the blah. Mm. That no, blah sound has people jumping out of their seat. the quality that when you're seeing the movie, each moment is unique, and once it's passed, you can't get back. Right. In comic books, you can flip around the comic, you can keep pages and see it before reading what's going to happen later and read it backwards or revisit a moment again immediately after you're reading it. So it's, it's different. And I think part of the achievement of making people concerned about what's happening is to make them feel sympathy for the characters. And I think that's the thing that I think is the strongest mm. contribution of Joe in the story, that from the very first script, you get, even through very brief lines, enough substance to fall in love with the characters. And when you get that compromise with what's going on in the story is when you get worried about the characters and when you get creeped that something harmful could happen to them. I also think that Gabe is, um, is 
sort of a master over controlling where the reader's eye is. He always knows what you're looking at and what you're going to look at next. He can track your eye across the page. So there is this panel where, you know, it's a summer night and Bodie is out collecting dragon uh, lightning bugs. Yeah. And uh, Kinsey yells, Bodie, it's time for dinner. And, and it cuts to Bodie in the barred window looking mm-hmm. out. He's like, coming! Mm-hmm. And because of the way your eye flows across the page, you see Bodie going, coming! And almost out of focus in the background, you, it takes you a moment later to see the thing coming out of the well mm-hmm. behind him. And that, you know, that's, that's about as close as you can get to a pure jump scare in a, in a comic that doesn't move, you know, where nothing jumps. Well, part of the challenge of the, of the storytelling comic also is that even though if in comics you have the advantage that you have no limit restriction of what you can show, it's like ha- having the chance to make a movie without budget limits mm-hmm. because you can make a spacecraft crashing on the ground and exploding in a million uh, explosion of fire and everything and have one million extras coming into a scene but you have the restriction of space you can't have more than 20 22 pages to tell mm-hmm. your story you can't have more than five six seven panels for well, every page 12 make panels it. a page 14 well, panels yeah, a page yeah that's very it gets tricky there's nothing but Gabe likes more than you can 14, go out of page. the of the frame of the page so being very aware of what you need to show and how to need you need to show it to make it as effective as possible for the storytelling possibility of what you're doing is what you need to keep in mind when you're especially when you're drawing comics because as i have said people sometimes the role of the visuals in a comic book is to build the prose of the narrative of the story. And what about the realism, the realism of the characters, not only visually, but in terms of what they're saying so that we, because I think for a lot of readers, when we're reading, we feel that these characters are real in their emotion mm-hmm. and, in, and, and in their reactions to things. So I'm wondering visually, as well as within the story and within dialogue, how you convey that realism. So, so one of the things I always try to emphasize is that Lock and Key isn't like this story that I wrote that Gabe drew pictures for. It's our story. We, we made it all up together. You know, We invented all the whole flow of the narrative is us, not one of us. Um, and I've always felt that I learned as much about the characters from the way Gabe draws them than he ever learned about them from anything I ever wrote about them. And to me, being able to see... Kinsey, you know, being able to see Nina, I understood things about them, sometimes just from the most casual facial expression. I could understand things. There was, so Nina Locke is, the, there's, in the first issue, there's a horrific home invasion that leaves Rendell Locke, the father and the family, dead. Nina Locke survives, and she's, she's spiraling into a breakdown. And then there was an image in one of the first issues uh, that's a flashback to happier days. The the trauma of the incident accelerated exactly. it, certainly, but she, that was our. It was already waiting. She was already standing on top of the trap door, and I didn't know that until Gabe showed it to me. Yeah, but I think and you, Gabe might maybe maybe you didn't know it until you drew it. Well, I think in a way, from your writing, I also realized that Joe has the skill of sometimes through very brief lines to convey not only what's happening, but also what's the inner world of the characters. And I think that's what inspired me the most in order to explore the possibility of, of the expressions of the characters. Because I think, talking about realism and how to convey realism, realism is not about drawings looking photorealistic, mm. but, as, hmm. uh, but about 
people behaving in a realistic way. You can have a very synthetic artwork and a very exaggerated features in a character, but if it's their body language is right and the way they interact is right and it's nuanced and you get to realize that maybe people when it's talking about something they are doing other things that kind, those kind of details get you a more realistic vibe of what's going on in the story not only about the inner world of the characters but also about how they interact with their environment uh, being trained as an architect for me uh, has been always important to apply in comic books. All I understand about space and design of spaces and everything for me, I remember when I read the first script, I immediately understood that Key House was going to be one of the main characters of the story, even being just a house, but it has to have a house that has to be able to tell a story about itself, express about the mood. past of the family, express mood, exactly. So all that was put into the story because... I know that as long as the characters feel realistic in their behavior and they feel like naturally integrated to the world that surrounds them, it's when you convey realism and you can be as exaggerated or over the top visually as you want as long as those conditions remain consistent throughout the story. It's about, it's about emotion and, mm. and emotional authenticity, not yeah. anatomy. Yeah. You know, I mean, Gabe can draw anatomy with the best of them. But you, you do sometimes in comic books, you know, the comic book world is full of, you know, artists who can draw, you know, they can get every vein in the muscle. But then the characters just kind of stand there like, you know, liver in a deli or something, just completely <laughs> dead. There's no life there. If you look at the art of someone like Bill Watterson, uh, who drew Calvin and Hobbes, mm -hmm. you know, it's not hyper-realistic art. Yeah. It's very we, cartoonish, silly exactly. art. But the... The characters are so emotionally vivid. You're yeah. just completely emotionally yeah. bonded to them in every panel. You can see what they're feeling, and you can yeah. really connect with it. Okay. Gabe can do the anatomy, but he can better than, better than many. Because the, the other thing about a lot of the superhero guys, mostly women don't look like that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever read a comic, but that's not actually what most women look like. <laughs> Anywhere, ever. <laughs> so so e the, even the guys who are supposedly so great with anatomy oftentimes are not. But Yeah, uh, there's even a sense of realism in comic that is not as realistic as you would Yeah, some of the most hyper-realistic comics yeah. are ridiculously unrealistic, yeah. you know? And, um, no, and there's another trick. I, I remember that when I started drawing Lock and Key, I realized that I, I, even though I think I was experienced enough with my storytelling mm -hmm. for what the story needed, I still felt like my drawing could keep improving. So I make the uh, conscious choice of starting drawing the comic in a more childlike way because I knew that throughout the story, these kids were going to be growing up. Yeah. So my idea would be to get more and more realistic in the drawing approach as the comic progresses. And if you compare the last issues of the sixth volume of Lock and Key with the first one, you can see that progression. And it was sort of a lucky guess. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to convey that. But as the series extended like way more than the original <laughs> planet, I, I had enough room to make it part of the narrative story. And talking about realism, you mentioned before the, the, the page that you really liked, which I remember vividly as well, is the head, with the head key, when you mm -hmm. open the head and you see um, what's happening inside. I think it's a really interesting way, it's a really visually very interesting and interesting way to learn about the characters. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, what I really wanted to ask is how do you, because each key has this supernatural power, mm -hmm. but how, and they're, sometimes they're very opposing supernatural powers, how do you have these keys that are like characters all existing, you know, realistically 
in this world. I mean, I think that's really an interesting reading through it, trying to figure out how you guys maybe came to that. The one thing that I wonder about the head key, so the head key goes into the back of a neck, and then your head opens up, and you can look into the, your yeah. own thought world. You know, a person Second. can look into your thought world like they're looking into an aquarium. Mm. So when you look into Bodhi's head, um, you and you know, don't you only look at it, you can interact with the yeah. stuff. Yeah, that you, you can have pull in your stuff head. out. Kinsey, who is 15, is has been badly traumatized and is completely frozen up. She's paralyzed with fear, and she's able to open her own head and remove her fear. And then at that point, it's you know, it's this tiny little goblin that she mm. sticks in a coke bottle. Mm. And then after that, she's not afraid anymore of anything, yeah. um, which is sort of a superpower. You know, she could be on a fifty-story building leaning out the window, and she wouldn't be afraid. Yeah. And is also kind of a super weakness exactly. because fear keeps you alive. Exactly. Um, one thing I wonder about the head key is. In the head key, when you open up a grown-up's head, everything is in black and white because the idea is you age into a kind of black and white acceptance of the world. But when you're a kid, everything is in technicolor, which yeah. felt right when we did it. But I've raised three kids, <laughs> and actually I think kids tend to see things in black and white. And that it actually takes – you actually need a grown-up perspective because for, for kids, things are right or they're wrong. Mm -hmm. There is very clearly – you know. The world is clearly divided. That's not vague. But then when you're a grown-up, I think you do start to sort of see that there are a lot more shades and hues oh, there. Probably the kids would see the things in primary colors only, mm. and then the adults will get like more shades in between. Yeah. We could keep exploring it in a new series. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll, have to, we'll, we'll have to see if Jay wants to go back and recolor, yeah. <laughs> recolor everything. I'm sure he's got nothing else to do. Yeah. You were speaking earlier about horror and the idea of getting scared uh, while reading as well. And you've mentioned before that you think horror and comedy are kind of connected in a way they come from the same engine. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, because, I mean, throughout Lock and Key, there are some pretty funny moments, mm -hmm. and there are some gruesome moments and horrific moments as well. So how do you sort of balance that within... Is it a character-driven thing, or is it more about the atmosphere and, or the house? Or I think it's basically the focus, because, for example, if you watch a Tom and Jerry cartoon mm -hmm. and you spin the focus a bit, that could be a great horror movie, <laughs> you see? And I think it's just about the approach you want to do in terms of focus and how you display things. Because sometimes if the, I don't know, if an iron falls on the head of a cat and explodes and the mouse is laughing at it, that could be great comedy or great horror, depending on how you portray it. So I think, in, in, in especially in Lock and Key, I think humor is really important in Lock and Key. Because not only gives like comic relief throughout the story, but also because it gets you a counterpart to which compared like the harsh stuff of the story. So everything that's dramatic becomes even more dramatic when you have these little moments of light in yeah. between this dark story. One of the things you know about the people you love is sometimes you just laugh because they are who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, you've fallen in love with this person, and then when they do something where they are completely themselves, you have to laugh because yeah. you're, just, you're just so satisfied <laughs> to see that person yeah. reaffirming once again that they really are themselves. And then and, against that, if a person behaves in a way that it's not what you know totally about unexpected. Them, it's creepy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think that once if, if Bodhi does something or Tyler says something that makes you laugh, you've fallen into the trap. Yeah. The trap you've fallen into is now you care about them. So when you turn the page and something awful happens to them, it matters. Exactly. And because now you feel that they are real, and that's yeah. what makes the story real for you. 
A lot of a lot of a lot of horror fails because it's just not funny. Yeah. It's just you know it's like sadism without wit is just a bore. Yeah, and in horror movies, and in horror movies, when the victims become like a, a plot device for the horror to keep expanding yeah. the horrible things, you don't get invested in it and you don't care about it. And that's when people start laughing in horror movies. Right. Right. Yeah. Then it becomes what what should be terrifying becomes ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something we were speaking about before as well, and it's this idea of violence. And I was curious mm -hmm. to know whether you guys ever try and censor yourself or mm -hmm. think you know maybe it's were too violent or too gruesome. Mm. And I was wondering if you guys could share what mm. your thought process that comes to with violence and maybe gruesome images uh, throughout Lock and Key. I think, you know, the, the comic, first of all, this is not a comic for kids. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's an adult story with adult themes. Um, you know, and there's some pretty extreme violence in the mm -hmm. comic. And I think that's okay if you're honest about what that means yeah. if you're honest that uh, that that with ex their extreme violence has extreme consequences yes and uh, you know this there's this horrifying home invasion in the first issue and you know Nina Locke is there you know right on the front lines of that and she's still wrestling with it 30 issues later you yeah. know emotionally she's still cored out she's been devastated by what she's been through all these kids have had their lives shattered, and those pieces are never really going to be put entirely back together. And, you know, I, I think there's actually something sort of morally reprehensible about supposedly less violent works. If you're watching something, I love the Marvel superhero films, <laughs> or I don't love the DC superhero films, but I, you know, but if you're watching a superhero film and, you know, the heroes are battling and a building collapses and you're seeing this terrific, that building had 400 people in it. What yeah, about I mean, their stories? Yeah. You know, and, and I think to, to present that as bloodless yeah. um, and meaningless is somehow sort of morally abhorrent. Yeah, violence has consequences and you have to see these consequences both in the plot and what happened in the inner world of your characters. And I think agreeing on that perspective is one of the things that led us with Joe to work so fluidly throughout the story because especially if, if you take the case of Nina Locke and all the shock that she suffers in the first issue, in the very last issue of the third book, uh, Crown of Shadows, we have this standalone issue of Nina Locke, which is like the, the final fall apart for that character. And I remember when I read the script of that issue and I had to draw it throughout a month and a half, I really have a really bad time drawing that comic book. Uh, well, because of two reasons. One is that part of my unconscious uh, um, influence in designing Little Lock was my wife, because when I had the first approach to the character, I really knew, I didn't know how mean this guy was going to be with the character, <laughs> so I had to apologize to Catalina every time that I draw these awful sequences. But also because that after working on over 15 issues with this character and having to realize in this special story in 22 pages how all the awful stuff that happened to this poor woman finally making like crumble apart in that point was really tough to to endure i remember i ended up really exhausted after that month and then when you got the rest of the story and she sort of like tear herself up and overcome all that pain uh, like being encouraged to survive in order to help her own kids mm -hmm. to, to survive their drama was very fulfilling also because and, and then you realize that all the, the horrible stuff that happened to the character at the beginning of the story was meaningful because it helped the character to grow throughout the story and uh, one of the most uh, reward I remember what, what, from time to time I received emails from readers 
uh, commenting stuff that they uh, that happened to them when they were reading the story. And I remember receiving an email from a woman that wrote uh, to me saying, I thank you and Joe because mm. seeing the suffering of Nina Lop throughout the story helped me to cope with my own mourning mm -hmm. because she had became a widow after an accident. So then you realize that stories are powerful and have an imp a, a true impact on people. The, um, I, we don't know yet if we're going to get a TV series or not, um, but I can say that there has been a continuing development. There is a writer's room. Most of the first season is written. Mm. Um, the Beyond Repair, the story about Nina hitting rock bottom, is, is one of the episodes in the first – total big spoiler. It's one of the episodes <laughs> in the first season is totally devastating, yeah. very heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, before we get into the TV adaptation, I wanted to ask you guys uh, one more thing. You were talking earlier about, because um, it's obvious the way you guys talk and, and communicate that this is how the story sort of developed and it's kind of, it kind of seems organic in a sense, but you had a really great uh, sort of story about how you kind of came up with the ending. Yeah, so, so and it's all, it is a really good example of how, of how we work together and how the story is, you know, we've always been full collaborators, full partners on the story. So Lock and Key is, is being adapted as a possible TV series right now. That's mm -hmm. happening. We won't know if we're actually going to have a TV. They filmed the hour-long pilot, which is awesome. Yeah. But we, we won't know if, there's, if we're greenlit for a full series for mm -hmm. possibly as much as another month. So we're in this We have of, actually some photos. Um, so if you could just show them while you're... I'm excited to see them, too, because oh, okay. I, I don't even know what photos <laughs> we have. Um, they were sent along, but I haven't seen them yet. Oh, so there's Tyler the, and Kinsey. Yeah. That's the drowning yeah, cave exactly. from... The entrance of the cave. Oh, this is cool. That's, uh, that That's, is a fellow named Al Grubb. Yeah. There is an Al Grubb in the comic, but he's very different. Yeah. He's very different in the uh, show. There's Nina Locke. And There's Nina Locke. Professor Ridgway yep. painting. Danny Glover is as Joe Ridgway, Professor yeah. Joe Ridgway. Uh, that is Sam Lesser. Our friendly and, Sam. Uh, and Nina Locke. Yeah. That's and Randall Locke. Locke and Sam Lesser. Having a nice chat. Yes, having a mild and yeah. friendly conversation. Those are the These kids. Are Kinsey, uh, Tyler, and Bodie. Sam Locke. Relaxing. Well, rela yeah. Sam Locke relaxing with his friends. Being himself. <laughs> Sam Locke having uh, a bad face day. Well, that's a little house over there in the yeah, country. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. I had more to say, but <laughs> I, I, I can't remember what it was now. Spoilers. That's the, uh, the, the key house? Yeah. Well, I'll tell the story. Anyway, yeah. you know, we'll let it roll and yeah. uh, I'll tell the story. So there was an earlier attempt to bring Locke and Key to TV, though. In 2010, Fox filmed an hour-long pilot. So there's actually been two pilots for Locke and Key. 2010, there was an hour-long pilot filmed by Mark Romanek, who directed Never Let Me Go. And uh, the best part of it, Gabe and I went to the set to see them film. But the best part of it wasn't actually watching them film the show. The best part of it was when we'd go to the hotel afterwards and we'd sit in the bar together and we'd talk about the comic, which we were still creating at that time. And together, yeah. over two or three nights, we mapped out the last 10 issues of the comic, or the last yeah, 14 issues of the comic. At that time, we were working in the fourth volume, in Kiss of the Kingdom, and had to sort out what was going to happen in Clockworks, Clockworks and Alpha and, and Omega. And, Alpha and, Omega. Yeah. and I, remember, I remember one night we were sitting there, and Gabe cracked a joke about, what if we did this? And he was just kidding. And my head almost exploded. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, oh my God, that's so great. We're doing that. <laughs> And, and it was sort of a, a joke because I was so insecure of suggesting it that <laughs> throwing it out as a joke would be like a safe way to test it. But it, it. Was, just, it was just like the most brilliant thing ever that it never crossed my mind. I just thought he just solved one, this enormous puzzle mm -hmm. at the heart of lock and key. And so there's two or three 
big twist, but that's, mm-hmm. that's maybe the, there's this mm-hmm. one, and I, because some of you may not have read the whole thing, I don't want to say what it was, mm-hmm. yeah. but there was this one sort of amazing thing that we, you know, where I just thought was great that we, that appears in the last six issues that solved, that solved a major problem for us. And that's a lot of writing, that's a lot of storytelling is puzzle solving. It's yeah. a lot like doing a crossword or figuring out a Rubik's Cube or something. You know, you get your characters into a situation, you have some situations set up, and then the question is, how do we resolve this in a way that feels dramatically satisfying? And part of the dynamic in which how we developed the, the books was also that Joe has such skill as a writer that he can give a different tone to each one of the six books of, of Lock and Key. And I think that's one of the major things of why the series works as well as it is, because our main concern was not to get repetitive or formulaic throughout the book. So we have a big action scene in one, and then we had the chance to do that again in other parts, but we spin it with a different focus and do it more compressed because we decide to have room to explore other possibilities in the narrative oh. and in the character. So, mm. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, um, and then we all stop talking. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. And is it daunting or is it worrying for you when you do hand over something that you guys have worked on for so long to, you know, to, a, to, to mm-hmm. other writers and, and it's going to be represented on, in another platform? Yeah. Well, as you say, as it is taken by other artists to be represented in another platform, for me, it's like an entirely new creative process. So I'm very proud of the book, the book series we did with Joe. I love the books. I love how they ended to be. And and to be able to handle that to other artists, to start a new creative vision out of it, I, I consider it very flattering. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that every time that you start a, a creative project, there's a chance that it succeeds or fails. You never know. And for each creator, it's a, a, an unexplored territory. And it's not up to you if it mm-hmm. succeeds or not. It's no also, posting. No, it's also no, no, no. part of the... For no, the, for no, the no, I saw. Uh, no. <laughs> spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> Uh, the thing is that you, if your job is completed, you can handle it and you can expect the best out of it. I'm very excited about it because it's, it's great for me to have the chance to mm-hmm. see this entire universe reinvented through it, the eyes of other talented people. So mm-hmm. I consider it very flattering and, and for me it's a thing in its own. It's, yeah. I, I don't th- see it as a consequence of our work, but something that is spontaneously generated out of it. Is it that easy for you, Joe, to let go or like see your, the work sort of turn into something else. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really flattering when someone says, we love your story, we want to do something with it, we want to make a show, Mm -hmm. we want to make a movie, that's Mm -hmm. tremendous. Nothing that happens to the TV show will change anything in the story. Mm -hmm. You know, we've we've got a set of books that are written complete, if the TV show comes out and it's awesome, it won't make our comic any better. Mm -hmm. And if a TV show comes out and it's terrible, it won't make our comic any worse. You yeah. know? So we've told one version of the story, and it can be very exciting and satisfying to, and, you know, and to see what have, someone else does with it. We have been very lucky that everyone that has been involved in the project uh, loves and cares about the characters as much as we do. So I think that's the only thing that you can expect. As long as they remain truthful to the core of the story and the core of the characters, everything else can be changed. Because also, when you think of an adaptation, you have to be very aware that adaptation doesn't mean translation. Yeah. There's no way that the lock and key story could be told in a, in a media that has completely different narrative tools in the same way that in the comic book. Mm-hmm. So as the comic gives you chances to do things that you can do on TV, mm-hmm. for example, TV does give you chances to explore things in a different way right. than comics. And you have to be 
open to that and, and appreciate that creators have the chance to try new things through, through, through these just different to, media. Just to be able to play dialogue between the characters for a while longer is exciting because, you know, when you have characters talk in a comic book, you've got maybe four panels or yeah. six panels or 15 panels. Gabe loves a 15-panel page. Yeah, love Nothing them, better. Love them. Um, Especially my editor because they delay me, so yeah, yeah, yeah. so happy. The, but, you know, you only have like, so say you have six panels on a page and you have characters talking and you can maybe have two word balloons in each panel and you yeah. can have 30 words in each, each word balloon. You see where this is going. There's yeah. just not that much real estate for characters to reveal themselves through dialogue. Yeah. But in a TV show... You can have actors, you know, talk something out, and that can be really. Of course, then working on a TV show, you discover actually real estate is limited there too. Yeah, yeah. and and oftentimes you'll have a page of conversation that has to get cut, and then an actor has to indicate everything that was in that conversation was a look. Yeah, and the good ones can do it. Yes, and and and, and the reference of uh, pacing that also, for example, you can do a very quick, intense action shot in TV in which you can show a very complex action in just a few seconds. And then to do that same thing in comic book form, maybe you need pages to do that same complexity. So it's a uh, and, what's great as back well and forth. What's great as well is that it will introduce a whole new audience to Lock yeah. and Key, yeah. um, which would be great for you guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite uh, scenes in the book as well is um, when the Tempest, when, when you have that mm-hmm. image of the Tempest and you have all the characters from uh, Rendell's generation. Yeah. I think there's so much happening in that page. It's so, it's so beautifully illustrated and it's really telling of, I think, the story generally. And I'm wanting, want, interested to know whether Shakespeare or who are your maybe influences, not as a writer and an illustrator, mm-hmm. but for the story. Were you influenced by other stories that you can think of with Lock and Key? Well, we've already talked about Sandman. Yeah. yeah. You know, the big thing about Sandman is Sandman is a 70-issue comic about a guy, about Morpheus, who is the mm. king of dreams. Yeah. And, you know, Neil Gaiman discovered in the course of writing it that he could tell any story he wanted using dreams as his leaping off point. So he could tell a horror story. He could tell a, a comic story. He could tell a romance, you know, a lush summary romance. He could, he could tell a whimsical fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always felt with Lock and Key that we could do the same thing with the keys, mm-hmm. that, you, you know, that every key had the potential to tell a different story yeah you know we were just talking about it just just before we came out we were talking about you know i I was thinking about awkward conversations you know and i was thinking um what do you say sometimes you know someone says i backed out of the driveway this morning and i ran down my wife's cat what do you say to them that's so (laughs) awful and then i thought what if you had a key you could stick into your throat and then you would always say exactly what that person needed to hear (laughs) <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be awesome? But it would also be kind of dangerous, yeah. right? Because you'd no longer be authentically you. Yeah. You'd just be piping back whatever they want to hear. Sort of like, and so suddenly you have a key, which is actually about social media. Mm-hmm. And that could be a very... Right? Like, isn't yeah, it? A, yeah. It instantly becomes about social media because we create these social media environments but where anyway, could be we only very, ever hear what we want to hear. It could also be a very subtle weapon because maybe you don't know what he needs to hear, but when you use the key and you realize what we need to hear... right. You know more you about the person. You can't keep secrets, right? Exactly. You can't write. Yeah. So that's all kind of. So that's that's what you. That's what's interesting is you know. Yeah. And um, in a way, this uh, our playing with keys was similar to what Neil Gaiman did playing with dreams crazy. in Sandman. And just speaking about influences, if you say, for example, visually, I, I had lots of influences. But if I can mention two, it could be one that was very strong was, for example, uh, the films of Hayao Miyazaki. 
yeah. that I think mm-hmm. I, he has yeah. a very unique way to convey the surreal and magical into something like from everyday like from everyday life and and that match of something that's very casual with something that's absolutely fantastic is something that I, I try to exploit yeah. in in lock and key and the other thing would be which is also a strong reference for both of us was the uh, something run uh, written by Alan Moore and especially the the exile saga in which i think mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Bissett, John Tolden and Alfredo Alcala did an amazing work of exploring what you can do with the visual storytelling of a comic book because in a few issues you have uh, changes of style changes of what you do with the coloring uh, some i remember there's an issue that's entirely made with photocopied collages and stuff like that and some of that we, we explored in, in Lock and Key. We changed the way in which we approached the narrative storytelling of the visuals. Different visual styles. To, to, yeah, to, to give the different books like a different looks and even different chapters. I think, in a way, Keys to the Kingdom, the fourth volume, was a, a very self-aware exercise of what you can do with the visual storytelling of Right, so we did. Books. So we did one that was, uh, you know, very obviously influenced by Bill Watterson and yeah. Calvin and Hobbes. That yeah. was one. We did one that was uh, inspired by all the weird war comics in yeah. the 1950s. Exactly. You know, um, I was also probably influenced by. I read a book when I was a, a child called "The House with a Clock on Its Walls" by John Belairs. And in some ways, I think Lock and Key is kind of like a young adult fantasy novel gone horribly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so a lot of what I work on feels that way. And House with a Clock on Its Walls is a house, an enchanted house with mysterious secrets. Mm. And I think that was on my mind, mm. especially in the early yeah. going. And from literature, I think, I don't know, most of, of the way I approach uh, fantasy and storytelling is very influenced by Red Bradbury's writings. Yeah. So I think, for example... Usher 2 from Martian Chronicles could be a spin-off of Lock and Key mm-hmm. set into a... It, uh, Usher 2 could be a key house in another setting. So there's a lot of that that you can prevent from showing up in your own world. Yeah. Things that were meaningful to you when you were growing up and reading and experiencing creativity <sighs> from other people. What's really interesting as well about the keys, like you both have already mentioned that you get these super powers, but there's also this sort of like dark side that can kind of mm-hmm. affect you from mm-hmm. them. So I'm kind of just curious if each of you could have a key, even if it's not in, in, in the comics, mm-hmm. a key you can invent, mm-hmm. knowing it's, you know, it's power and it's mm-hmm. vice. What? Well, I, I would pick two. One that I would make up because we haven't used in the, in the comics, but would be the extended deadline key. <laughs> I really need that one, and my editor would appreciate that one too. But from the ones that we did for, for the book, even though there are a lot that are very playful and challenging, I think that the one that I appreciate the most by far would be the Anywhere Key, because every day I have to go to travel to a con or a show like this or everything. <laughs> Living in Chile, everything is 10 or 11 hours away, so to be able just to turn up a lock and walk into the room that I need to get would be awesome. Yeah, I was just thinking the Anywhere Key... I'm uh, I'm engaged to a, a woman who lives outside of London, and the money I would save flying back and forth between Boston and London would be would be immense. But then, when you think about it, if we had the anywhere key, if people had access, they would you know they wouldn't have the pleasure of flying Emirates Airlines. Um, so, so we're going back now to the, to the adaptation. I'm wondering what your hope is for that. If it's six seasons in a movie. <laughs> Right? Yeah. <laughs> Great. Six, 50 episodes, seasons, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Daily. 
We've talked about writing more lock and key. We've, if there is a TV show, I think there's a good chance Gabe and I are going to come back and do another six-book series. It wouldn't be a minor commitment. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about doing a series called World War Key. Mm-hmm. And so the first story, and it would be both a prequel and a sequel. Yeah. So, so the first book would be called World War Key Revolution, mm-hmm. and it would take us back to the Revolutionary War, and it would tell the story of Key House yeah. as America fought for its independence. And Ben Luck's family, the original... Right, and yeah. we'd find right, and yeah. we'd and we'd spend time with all these the the, yeah. the earliest progenitors of yeah. the Locke family. Ben the second book would be called Lock and Key Resurrection, mm. and it would be set in the modern day, mm. and we'd be visiting, checking in again with some characters we haven't seen since the original series. Yeah, but a couple of years after. The but a couple of years, so these characters would be a bit older than the last time we yeah. saw them, and the events, some events triggered by the Revolutionary War, would come through to infect the modern day exactly. without giving too much. And so, and and in that. That way, it would be a continuation of what Lock and Key has always been about, which is that history casts a long shadow over the present. Yeah. You know, uh, there's the great William Faulkner line where he said, you know, the past isn't over, it isn't even past. And mm-hmm. I've always thought that was sort of an enigmatic and kind of wise, you know, little Yeah, and basically, line. with Joe, we've been discussing this idea of coming back to the universe of Lock and mm-hmm. Key because we think there are still stories that are worth telling. Uh, so... Maybe the TV show would give us the chance to uh, accelerate the process and maybe doing right away because otherwise we're dealing with other projects. But I know we'll eventually we'll get back there. This would be a nice opportunity to try it. But we've been discussing these ideas and these stories, and we want to come back to this universe because we think that there are stories worth telling that we still can explore. We don't want to get back to Key House just... To, for, to cash in. Yeah, to yeah. cash in and to... to well, and it's, it's a little... I mean, one of the... It, so, but it's easy to imagine not doing World War Key 2. And, mm-hmm. one, you know, I think it would be the kind mm-hmm. of thing where both of us w- are excited to do it and want to do it, and if we did it, would would be committed to doing mm-hmm. it as well as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you think about stuff like, um, you know, when George Lucas returned to Star Wars, he made the prequels, and they were <laughs> god-awful. You know, I love Lord of the Rings. I hate but the he Hobbit gave us Jar Jar. Yeah, well, there's that. There's that. <laughs> you know, and so you want to be careful that, that yeah. if you come back, that you really have a story to tell, yeah. that you're not just circling back because mm. there are more profits to be made. Yeah, yeah, um, because we're very worried that we don't want to ruin our own story. We're right. very proud of Lock and Key, and we want to, to return to it because we love it and we want to make it better. The other thing is, the other thing is, is that if we talk about doing six books, that's a seven-year commitment. Yeah. I mean, off and on, and we get to work on other projects, but so then the question is, well, what projects could we be doing together instead of Lock and Key. So is there another series? Is there another different original series we could do instead? Those are the kinds... So there's an opportunity cost there. So those are the kind of questions you weigh. I think if there was a TV series, we'd be excited and people would be excited. We're very sure that we want to collaborate again. We have ideas that could be exciting to keep exploring. And either it was on Lock and Key or another book that would be great to... Did anyone hear a Velociraptor? Yeah. (laughs) I think it's a phone. Was maybe? that just me? Sounds like a phone. No. You ever notice velociraptors sound cute? Sometimes, like like until they're shrieking, they actually yeah, make this yeah. funny little clicking. Anyway, uh, on that sorry. note, I'm gonna hand it over to you guys if you have any questions. I have a question for Joe. Yeah. So I was wondering, did you ever um, think, or did it ever happen to you that you thought, "Oh my God, I don't want, I don't know what I'm gonna write in the next issue. 
And how did you, how would you get over something like that? And for writer's Gabe, block. Yeah, writer's and, block. And for Gabe, for Gabe, did you disagree with Joe before, and how would you handle that as well? I, the first issue of Lock and Key was very, very easy to write and came together. It was almost like magic. The second issue of Lock and Key was one of the hardest things I've ever written in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was because I didn't, know the, I didn't know the characters well enough. I still didn't really know who, who Uncle Duncan was. I didn't know who Nina was. I just had, I, there was too many question marks. The only characters I really understood were Tyler and Bodie. And in the end, I saved myself by just making the story about Bodie. <laughs> but I wound up doing something like 14, 16 drafts on issue two of Lock and Key. And it's funny, I've had three experiences as a writer that were really, really difficult. The first was I wrote a short story called Pop Art um, that was in my first collection, 20th Century Ghosts. And I'm very proud of that story. I did something like 35 drafts on it for an editor who was just never satisfied. Just, he, just, he said, could you do this? Could you change this? Could you? And I hated the guy. I mean, I just couldn't, absolutely couldn't stand the guy. And by the, time the, by the time the story came out, I felt that it was the best thing I had ever done, that it was just this, you know, that I had, I had sort of solved something I had never solved before as a writer and was, wound up being grateful for all those drafts. Mm-hmm. Issue two of Lock and Key was almost impossible to write, and I just struggled over it and struggled over it and struggled over it, and, and eventually we got it. Eventually, mm-hmm. you know, we got in. And, yeah. and then I wrote the script for the pilot. Uh, that we're seeing back here and it was really fun to write and it was really easy it doesn't make any this is like how could this be the second episode of Lock and Key was really really hard and how could that be I've already got the comics all you gotta do is what's in the comics you know and, but second episodes are very very hard and I actually wound up doing something like 15 drafts and in the end I didn't solve it I got to spend a week in the writer's room so we assembled this crack team of writers to create this because I was only going to write the first two episodes and I worked on the third. Um, and actually sitting in the room and talking with them about the problems of the second episode helped me figure it out. Mm-hmm. So that can be a very exciting, can be a very yeah. exciting experience. Yeah, regarding your question to me, I, I, I think I never had a problem working with Joe's uh, scripts. Uh, one, because I think we have the same approach to what we care about stories and what the stories we're telling. And also because I'm very aware that Joe knows what comics could do as a media so well that he really can shape up a comic in a way that doesn't need much more revision from the artist. And also, as we keep developing our... Sometimes uh, he sent me the script with suggestions for certain sequences telling me if you find another way to sort this out, change it, and I'll change and mm-hmm. fit the dialogue. So it was constantly a come-and-going exercise. So we never debate about that kind of stuff. The only major problem that we have with Joe is regarding music, but I know that one day he'll come out of the closet as a huge Rush fan, oh. and he'll admit that it's the greatest band it's in the so world. It's so funny. It's so funny because we're on the same page about so much. We're we're threaded together like <laughs> you know fingers. But like his thing for Rush is like a broken finger. It's like this weird mangled finger that doesn't connect. They did do an album One, called Lock and Key. Did they? They do a song a called song, Lock and Key. A song called Lock and Key. Yeah. Ugh. I know it inspired you. One uh. day you. 